This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. Today's episode is the 12th episode in our series on A Gentle Path Through the 12 Principles by Dr. Carnes. And so we are discussing Principle 12. And I have to say, you know, I did the 12 Principles with Dr. Carnes. It was a three-year process. And I did it several years ago. And so it was helpful as I worked through the principles with the group that I was working with and the people that I got to know during my time working the 12 principles. It was also really great for me to review and look at again the principles and practice them with some renewed understanding at this time in my life. And I hope that you've also gotten a lot out of these 12 principles. I think they can be really helpful to just recircle back to and examine as we go through our life and come upon challenges, obstacles, exciting changes, positive changes. I think it can be really good to be mindful of the principles as we move forward in life. So generativity, Dr. Karn says, is helping others, giving back, contributing to society, making a positive difference, creating a better world leaving a legacy, guiding and encouraging the next generation and the many generations thereafter. It coincides with step 12, which is having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics or to addicts or to those in recovery and to practice these principles in all our affairs. The question that coincides with principle 12 is how do I pass it on? And so of course, Principle 12 is generativity because it's all about passing it on and having this awakening, going through a process of change. The word generativity was coined by psychologist Eric Erickson, and it's the seventh of his eight stages of human development. So Eric Erickson developed his eight stages of development to explain how people mature. Little review, maybe you aren't aware of this, maybe you forgot it, maybe you took it in a high school psychology class and haven't much thought about it since then. So the stages that Eric Erickson developed clarify the developmental challenges faced at various points in our life. His theory is widely taught today in developmental psychology courses in the United States. Stage-based theories of development were really popular during Erickson's era But there's one important difference between Erickson's theory and other popular models of his time. In Erickson's theory, a person doesn't have to successfully complete one stage of development in order to move on to the next. In Erickson's eight stages of development, each stage has a conflict between two opposing concepts. For example, the infancy stage main conflict is trust versus mistrust. So we either develop trust or we develop mistrust. So it's not like the other models of his time where you had to successfully accomplish this development milestone of trust in order to move on to the next developmental stage. You either develop trust or you developed mistrust. Now, Erickson said that although people of all ages may experience issues with trust, the infancy stage is where the challenge is most potent. 
So like I said, what if the person doesn't overcome the challenges of a particular stage? Well, we still move on to the next challenge or the next stage of development, but the themes from the previous challenge will affect or often affect later stages. So for example, a child who never establishes trust in infancy, right? In infancy, we're looking at our primary caregivers, maybe our family of origin, but if we don't develop trust in infancy, that's gonna grow into an adult who is also going to struggle with trust in adult friendships, romantic relationships, work relationships. So the eight stages of development, according to Eric Erickson's model, stage one, we talked about infancy, which the challenge here is trust versus mistrust. You know, infants depend on caregivers, usually the parents, for basic needs such as food, shelter. Infants learn to trust others based upon how well our primary caregivers are going to meet those needs. And often we've, we've kind of looked at those, some of those basic needs for food, shelter, protection, as maybe those were the most basic in developing trust. Having a caregiver that responds promptly to an infant's cries, where the infant begins to learn to rely on others to respond to and to, you know, ask for needs and wants. As caregivers feel this infant's needs, the baby then develops a sense of trust and security. Whereas in mistrust, if caregivers neglect an infant's needs for one reason or another, or if care is sporadic, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. An infant will often grow up insecure or with mistrust. They learn that they can't rely on others and then they feel unsafe. Stage two happens in toddlerhood. And the challenge in stage two is autonomy versus shame and self-doubt. So during this phase of development, young children begin exploring the world around them. They learn more about their environment and their place within it. They also develop basic skills such as toilet training. Autonomy in this stage looks like caregivers who often serve as a safe base from which to explore the world. When caregivers encourage independence, children will often feel secure enough to take risks. And some of that is, you, you know, we're watching over this infant, we're, or not infant, we're watching over this toddler during this stage. We're allowing them to explore, but we're also there in a way that if the risk that they're taking is dangerous, if they start to wander off into places that is not going to be safe for them, we're also there able to bring them back into safety. So again, that part of trust also shows up in this stage Whereas a child who's trusting is going to be more likely to have a sense of autonomy and explore and take some risks, knowing that somebody's there protecting them, guiding them, watching over them so that they're not unsafe. Shame or self-doubt. These children have caregivers who maybe discourage them, keep things pretty close, don't allow them to explore their environment. And they may develop feelings of shame if caregivers you know, foster excessive dependence, Erickson also said this child will learn to doubt their own abilities. Even though maybe that doubt really belongs on the parent, the child's going to integrate that as something personal about themselves. In stage three, these are the preschool years. And the challenge in this developmental stage is initiative 
versus guilt. So preschoolers are increasingly focused on doing things themselves. If you've ever been around a child this age, it's not uncommon for them to have to do it themselves and establishing their own goals. What are they trying to master? This may be, you know, tying your shoes, brushing your teeth on your own. So in initiative, caregivers nurture these tendencies. They allow children to make decisions and start to plan for the future. You know, we may think as caregivers or as adults that it may not be likely, but we're allowing kids to start to plan for the future. I know during this time um, for my third daughter, you know, she had two older siblings who weren't necessarily in this stage. And we were in the car one time, just me and the three of them, and we were talking about what they wanted to be when they grew up. And so my oldest daughter was saying that she wanted to be a vet and she wanted to work with animals. It's not what she's pursuing, but that's what she said when she was that age. Second daughter wanted to be a nurse and she wanted to work with the newborn babies. And then third daughter proudly announces that she's going to be a train. And they all kind of look at her like my older two kind of look at her like, what? And she's, and they, they said like, a train and she was like yeah I'm gonna be a train and they were like do you want to drive the train and she's like no I'm going to be the train you know and I'm listening to this like I know that's not gonna happen I don't need to correct her her two older siblings definitely felt like they needed to correct her like human beings can't be a train like you're never going to be a train so then she proudly announced oh well okay then I'm gonna be strawberry shortcake again sure imagine Plan for your future, right? It may not be very realistic, but sure, you can be imaginative, you can dream, you can wonder. That's a great stage for kids. On the other hand, if children are criticized for being assertive, they might feel guilt for pursuing their desires. Same daughter, this one was, you know, kind of a curious kid. And my mom had her and had taken her to my grandma's house. So my mom's house. That would be daughter number three's great grandma's house. And my grandma was showing her this aloe vera plant and how if you broke it off, you could put that on your skin. It would heal sores. It would heal scratches, different things like that. It could help the skin heal. And the aloe vera plant would grow back like it would just regenerate itself. So, you know, my grandma's explaining this to her, talking to her about this. She's fascinated. She's interested. My mom and my grandma walk into her kitchen, leaving daughter number three in the living room. And she proceeds to break off all the aloe vera plants, like squeezing it out, putting it on her skin, rubbing it on. So, you know, I pick up my daughter from my mom and my mom's like, you know, Jackie, she was so destructive. Like, I'm so worried about her. I'm worried about, you know, whether she's, you know, she's got this destructive side to herself. And I'm like, what happened? Like, What in the world did she do? And so my mom explains the story to me and I'm thinking, of course, of course she did that. Like you showed her this amazing plant, which by the way, is going to regenerate itself. And then you, the two adults leave the room and leave her with the plant. Of course she broke the whole thing off. Of course she squeezed it all out, was rubbing it all over her skin. Like, of course she did. But, you know, my mom's coming to me and, and initially it did kind of make me worry. Like, you know, when my mom's like telling me how destructive my child was, I'm like, oh yeah, like that's a problem. But again, I'm just like, you know, she's just exploring. And to me, the problem is 
you left the room. Like, not that she destroyed the plant. It didn't destroy it, but not that she, you know, basically was being destructive to this plant, but that you explained to her how you could break this plant apart and then you left the room. That's not unusual for me to know that about my mom, right? That that she may want me to feel guilt or my daughter to feel guilt for pursuing this curiosity that she had. On the other hand, if caregivers are too controlling, they might teach kids to just follow another person's lead, to just be a follower and never really think for themselves or start to make their own goals or their own tap into their own wants and desires. Stage four of Erickson's model is the early school years. And the challenge in this developmental stage is industry versus inferiority. Now in this stage, children start to grow in independence. They're often away from parents for an extended period of time when they're in school. They become increasingly aware of themselves as individuals. They start to become aware of peer groups and how they fit in or don't fit in with peer groups. They begin to compare themselves with others, rightly or wrongly, accurately or inaccurately. They start to compare themselves to others. So in industry, children who are accomplished compared to their peers can develop self-confidence and pride. They often receive praise for their achievements and they can, it can boost their self-esteem and how they view themselves as an individual. Now, sometimes I also have to sometimes tell clients like, look, if we were to take a baby that's born in, let's say, I think the cutoff in Utah where I live, the cutoff for beginning school, August 31st. If your birthday's before August 31st, you can begin kindergarten. If your birthday's after August 31st, you have to wait for the next year, right? So daughter number three, her birthday was September 6th, which she complained a lot about having to go to another year of preschool when she definitely felt she was prepared for kindergarten. So I know what those cutoff dates are. But if you take a kid who was born August 31st and you put them in kindergarten with a kid, I mean, you have to do this at some point, but you put them in kindergarten with a kid who was born September 1st. Or in my daughter's case, the next year, she was born September 6th, and she's going to school with kids who were born August 31st. There's a huge difference in development. Like if you were to take a baby that's born, you know, August 1st of one year, and then a baby that's born September 1st the next year, or let's say they're born, you know, yeah, August 31st or August 1st and September 1st of the previous year, there's a whole year of difference. And at those stages, even at five, that can make a difference in terms of what they're able to do, right? I mean, mostly by the time kids are hitting the kindergarten age, they can all walk, they can all talk, they can, you know, have different levels of social engagement. But we are, we're talking a year difference in development, And so some of those kids who may be falling closer to the beginning of the age group might be much more successful in their accomplishments compared to the peers at the later months of the calendar year. And yet they may feel like that's about me. I wasn't as smart. I didn't learn to read as quick as everybody else in my grade not recognizing that you were among the youngest in your grade compared to some of the oldest. 
And so children who don't achieve certain milestones or don't achieve them as quickly may begin to doubt their abilities or doubt their self-worth. Or when children are constantly criticized, they also may develop feelings of inferiority. Whether that's criticized by a teacher, criticized by a parent, criticized by their peers. Stage five moves us into adolescence. And in this stage, the challenges are identity versus role confusion. So here we get the famed term identity crisis, right? It comes from this period of development. During this stage, adolescents' main goal is to answer the question, who am I? And I find that's a really premature age to answer those questions of who am I? Because so many things change during adolescence, I find, having had four kids go through those stages. They might try different personalities or different personas in order to figure out which role fits them best. I remember, you know, one year my daughter was in junior high and we went back to school shopping, bought a bunch of stuff for the upcoming school year. And probably three months in, she's telling me like, mom, I don't really have any clothes to wear. I need more clothes. And I'm like, I'm, I know, I just bought you a bunch of clothes. Like I could go back and show you on my bank statement. Like I know I purchased a bunch of clothes for you. And she was like, yeah, but when I bought the clothes, I thought I was a skater. And now I realize I'm not a skater. And so I have all these skater clothes, but that's not me. And I was like, okay, well, my pocketbook is not going to keep up with all these different identities for you to figure out who you are and who you are not. She, to this day, will sometimes look back on those pictures and be like, oh, mom, like that was not who I was and you made me wear these clothes. So in order to develop a sense of identity, to succeed in this stage, adolescents need to establish this coherent sense of self. They need to be able to determine their priorities in life. They're navigating between family, academics, uh, social, maybe some romantic they're going to need to be able to set goals for their self based on what those values are and what their priorities are. If we move into role confusion, some adolescents may have kind of a weak sense of self. They may struggle in order to break away from the person their parents or their peers expect them to be. I think it's important as parents that we understand during this period our children may start testing some of those boundaries and that's a way that they move away from us or they start to question boundaries or rules that we have in place for them. Without a consistent identity that they are able to have a voice in, they may grow up confused about what they truly want for the future because they don't have this sense of who I am. In stage six, this is young adulthood. And the struggle during this stage is intimacy versus isolation. Now, according to Erickson, young adulthood is the period during which many people get married or develop significant relationships. It's been defined as anywhere from 20 to 24 years to 20 to 40 years. Intimacy in relationships can be a key source of affection and intimacy in adulthood. Many find emotional benefits from having a committed, lifelong bond. In isolation, according to Erickson, people who do not develop relationships may become socially isolated. They may develop long-term feelings of loneliness. Sometimes with the clients I'm working with, this is often where addiction started to escalate, which also reinforced 
a sense of isolation or a sense of loneliness. In stage seven, which is what we're going to be talking about, I know this has been a long road into what we're going to talk about, but in stage seven, middle adulthood, the challenges are generativity versus stagnation. The focus of this stage is to contribute to society and the next generation. Usually at this point, you know, we're not necessarily climbing anymore. Maybe we already have figured out what our career is. Maybe we've even settled into our career and we've climbed the ladder enough that we're comfortable. Usually we've bought a house. We, we have things that kind of settle us in. And so we're not necessarily um, accumulating or growing and expanding. And this is the place where we can start to contribute and give back to the next generation. Often during this stage, a lot of people are also raising children and those children are now older, maybe not um, needing so much physical demands, right? We're not constantly having to watch them and make sure that they're safe, but they're asking or they're needing more emotional parenting from us. So in generativity, we're able to offer guidance. Maybe this is through parenting, but not only parents go through this stage of development, it also may be mentorship. We're offering things that for us, we've been able to identify some of our strengths and our capabilities. And it's a way of leaving a legacy for us by handing this off or offering some of the wisdom or experience that we've gained in life to the younger generation or you know, whether that's nieces, nephews, our own children, younger employees in our work field. Contributing to our society's future, right, can often give us a sense of community and purpose as we're moving into this middle adulthood into the the next stage, which is late adulthood. In stagnation, some people may feel as if they have no impact on society. Maybe they've struggled with all of these previous struggles in the stages of development and they get to this place and they're also floundering and they are questioning themselves. They don't know if they have anything of meaning. Maybe they don't find their work meaningful. And so they might feel restless or isolated. Some may have felt that they've already peaked and this is all going to be downhill from here on out. That's the uh, stage we're going to be talking about, generativity. Now, I want to also just finish up and talk about stage eight before we move into generativity, which is principle 12. So stage eight is late adulthood. And in this stage, the conflict or the challenge is ego integrity versus despair. So during this phase, older adults are reflecting on the life that they've lived. In ego integrity, those who feel fulfilled by their lives can face aging and even death proudly. In despair, people who have disappointments or regrets can also fall into despair, feeling like it's too late to do it different. It's too late to make the difference that I wanted to. Now, there are limitations of Erickson's eight stages, and I wanted to make sure we covered those as well. His eight stages of development, it's a popular theory, but it's often criticized for supporting a limited view of human development. Critics often argue that Erickson focused too much on childhood and neglected the development that occurs in adulthood and even young adulthood on. He admitted a person's identity could change in adulthood after the adolescent stage, but he didn't really offer any speculation on how or why such a change would happen. 
in the previous episode, I talked about Richard Rohr and his, I guess it's a theory of, uh, or what he talks about as first stage of life and second stage of life. Maybe he's grappling more with how that happens, how the change happens or why that change happens. Other critics with Erickson take issue with his views on gender. Erickson agreed with Freud that personality differences between the genders were rooted in biology, which we don't necessarily ascribe to that in the psychology field anymore. He claimed that human development also differed by gender. And so feminist theories criticize Erickson for using the male experience as the default template for human development. And I may not need to say this, but I will anyway. When we're talking about the male experience, we're talking also about the white male heterosexual experience as the default template for human development. And then lastly, some critics say Erickson focuses too much on speculation rather than on actual data. Erickson based much of his theory on biographical case studies. Now, although Erickson's view of generativity initially centered on the attainment and development of children, he also explained that generativity can include forms of productivity and creativity. So he found in his research that there are people who, he said, quote, through misfortune or because of special and genuine gifts in other directions, they don't apply this drive to their own offspring. So this isn't something that parents are handing down to their children. Maybe they're mentoring others in their profession, but they lose track of, or they don't feel this importance in terms of parenting or their own offspring. They may invest themselves into the larger communities. And so Erickson's notion of generativity has a biological basis as well as a sociocultural component. In later work, Erickson stressed the roles of grandparenting as well as freedom, responsibility, lifelong learning, and the arts as part of the vital involvement of older people in society in a generative manner. Now, we, when readdressing his lifespan theory in his older age, Erickson concluded that some people may not feel needed, they may feel existentially useless, or may focus entirely on the self. So to be sure, the relationship between generativity and narcissism, which is what he later in later years referred to stagnation, kind of this narcissistic complex. Although narcissism may be one way of thinking about what generativity is not, both narcissism and generativity can also have some parallels in terms of self-fulfillment that can be you know, closely related to developing a legacy and leaving behind something of value or worth that comes from my personal gains. Later, Cotre proposed a theory that separated generativity into four types and two modes. The four proposed types that he included were biological. This is fertility or the, you know, having children, reproducing. Second, parental, nurturing and disciplining or raising offspring and teaching family traditions, passing down family traditions. Third, the technical or the teaching of skills, um, skills that would last, not necessarily to children, not necessarily, might be to children, but also just teaching skills to others. And then cultural, creating and conserving kind of the symbol system 
and explicitly passing things on to successors. In Andy Andrews' book, The Noticer, the story involves an aging widow named Willow who's waiting to die. She's healthy and she's financially stable, but she feels she has nothing left to live for or offer the world. And then she encounters the book's protagonist who laughs at the notion that she has outlived her usefulness. He asks her, quote, who gave you permission to decide that you had nothing more to do and nothing more to offer? And then he reels off a long list of people who made a difference in their eighth and ninth decades of life. By the time they were done talking, Willow had moved from stagnation and hopelessness into the beginning of generativity. She realized that she still has much to give the world and she had plenty of time to give it. In a study conducted by MIT professor Pierre Azoulay, he analyzed 2.7 million people who founded companies between the years 2007 and 2014. He found that a founder at age 50 is approximately twice as likely to experience a successful exit, meaning they get acquired or go public compared to a founder at age 30. Business Insider rounded up 25 famous people who did not achieve success until well past their 30th birthday. And here are just a few of them. Stan Lee created his first hit comic, The Fantastic Four, just shy of his 39th birthday in 1961. In the next few years, he created the legendary Marvel Universe, whose characters such as Spider-Man and the X-Men became American cultural icons. Donald Fisher was 40 and had no experience in retail when he and his wife Doris opened the first Gap store in San Francisco in 1969. Gap's clothes quickly became fashionable and today the company is one of the world's largest clothing chains. Speaking of fashion, Vera Wang was a figure skater and journalist before entering the fashion industry at age 40. Today, she's one of the world's premier women's designers. Samuel L. Jackson has been a Hollywood staple for years now, but he'd only had bit parts before landing an award-winning role at age 43 in Spike Lee's film, Jungle Fever, in 1991. Henry Ford was 45 when he created the revolutionary Model T car in 1908. Rodney Dangerfield is remembered as a legendary comedian, but he didn't catch a break until he made a hit appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show at age 46. Julia Child worked in advertising and media before writing her first cookbook when she was 50, launching her career as a celebrity chef in 1961. Jack Cover worked as a scientist for institutions including NASA and IBM before he became a successful entrepreneur at 50 for inventing the taser gun in 1970. Betty White is one of the most award-winning comedic actresses in history, but she didn't become an icon until she joined the cast of The Mary Tyler Moore Show in 1973 at age 51. Beloved comedian Steve Carell is known for his many blockbuster hits, including The 40-Year-Old Virgin and The Big Short, but he didn't land his hit role as Michael Scott in The Office until he was 42. Ray Kroc spent his career as a milkshake device salesman before buying McDonald's at age 52 in 1954. He grew it into the world's biggest fast food franchise. Laura Ingalls Wilder spent her later years writing semi-autobiographical stories using her educated daughter Rose as an editor. She published the first in the Little House books at age 65 in 1932. 
They soon became children's literary classics and the basis for the TV show, Little House on the Prairie. Harlan Sanders, better known as Colonel Sanders, was 62 when he franchised Kentucky Fried Chicken in 1952. He sold the franchise business for 2 million 12 years later. Anna Mary Robertson Moses, better known as Grandma Moses, began her prolific painting career at 78. In 2006, one of her paintings sold for 1.2 million. Hers is one of the biggest names in American folk art, and she didn't even pick up a brush until she was well into her eighth decade. She was originally a big fan of embroidery until her arthritis became too painful for her to hold a needle. She was 76 when she cranked out her first canvas and she lived another 25 years as a painter. Harry Bernstein spent a long life writing in obscurity, but finally achieved fame at age 96 for his 2007 memoir, The Invisible Wall, a love story that broke barriers. Now, often conventional wisdom holds that if we work hard, we're gonna be more successful. And if we're more successful, then we'll be happy. If we can just find that great job, win that next promotion, lose those five pounds, happiness is sure to follow. However, recent discoveries in the field of positive psychology have shown that this formula is actually backwards. Happiness fuels success, not the other way around. When we're positive, our brains become more engaged, creative, motivated, energetic, resilient, and productive. Generativity prompts us to think not only of the present, but of the future, including the far future. Dr. Carnes writes, as we share our gifts with the world, we keep in mind the generations to come, our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren. We realize that the efforts we make today don't just benefit us, they leave a legacy. Generosity of spirit is a core aspect of generativity, but so are mindfulness and discernment. We give because we have things worth sharing and a willingness to share them. But generativity prompts us to not share anything that will hamper others' growth or limit their ability to live and learn. As I said, step 12 reads, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to the others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. I wanted to end the 12 principles by reading from a few of the various 12-step fellowships about what they say when it comes to step 12 and what they teach when it comes to generativity. From the AA Big Book, ask in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the person who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. From 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, in a very real sense, they have been transformed because they had laid hold of a source of strength which in one way or another they had hitherto denied themselves. They find themselves in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love of which they had thought themselves quite incapable. From Narcotics Anonymous, we share from our own personal experience what it has been like for us. The temptation to give advice is great, but when we do so, we lose the respect of newcomers. This clouds our message. A simple, honest message of recovery from addiction rings true. By staying clean, we begin to practice spiritual principles such as hope, 
Surrender, acceptance, honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, faith, tolerance, patience, humility, unconditional love, sharing, and caring. As our recovery progresses, spiritual principles touch every area of our lives because we simply try to live this program in the here and now. We do recover to live clean and happy lives. Welcome to NA. The steps do not end here. The steps are a new beginning. From Al-Anon, we experience a gradual awakening of the spirit, a gentle metamorphosis in the way we see ourselves and others, a slow and subtle unfolding of our own inner beauty. Some of us actually feel reborn, hopeful, and free of the fears and burdens that had previously prevented us from true living. Thus, although our circumstances may not have changed, our lives improve dramatically because we perceive them in a new and clearer way. It is important, however, to remember that the message we carry is the result of working all the steps and applying them to every aspect of our lives. When we first came to Al-Anon, many of us wanted to carry the message to others before even taking the first step ourselves. Others use this part of the 12th step to justify their efforts to push the alcoholic into a treatment program. But in time, as we work the steps, we realize that we cannot carry a message we have not learned for ourselves. Our futures are unwritten books. With the help of the 12 steps and the other Al-Anon principles, we will fill those pages with a life that is rich in love, constructive action, and spiritual well-being. From Sexaholics Anonymous, staying sober is our initial objective. A spiritual awakening is the unintended result. If our experience tells us anything, it is that there is no healing without such an awakening. And the difference between merely not acting out our addiction or being dry and healing is the new life. If we want the old life intact, simply minus the habit, we don't really want healing for our sickness is the old way of life. The result of working the steps is not primarily a physical or emotional awakening, though those are involved. It is essentially a spiritual awakening where the spirit that was dead to God, others, and rightness is made alive to God, alive to others, and alive to rightness. Spiritual awakening is not merely sobriety. An awakening to knowledge about the steps, belief in the steps, or psychological insights into why they work. It is a change of state, an awakening of what was once dead. All along, this is what we had really been looking for, lusting for, sexing for, and taking for. By taking, we had separated ourselves from others. By giving, we found true union with others and behold, love itself. But it slipped in unrecognized through the back door, surprised by joy. From Sex Addicts Anonymous, we notice in ourselves a deepening humility that allows us to ask for and receive help when we need it. We find ourselves being less judgmental, more ready to let go of resentments and admit when we are wrong. We make the effort to repair relationships that we have damaged. We choose to keep the company of people who respect us, care for us, and treat us well. We start to see life in terms of growth, change, and transformation. We have a greater sense of belonging, intimacy, and true friendship. We endeavor to live according to our true purpose. From ACOA, ACA members who focus primarily on seeking a spiritual awakening without working on the effects of family dysfunction are often involved in a spiritual bypass. 
A spiritual bypass means that the person is attempting to avoid the pain that can come with working through the trauma and neglect from childhood. In some cases, the person attempts to jump ahead in the recovery process without going through the entire process. This path invariably leads to dissatisfying results. We go outward by going inward. We become inwardly illuminated. Reaching step 12 is the beginning, not the end. It is the beginning of a new way of life that we can take into our workplace, relationships, and on our spiritual journey. We have been applying ACA in all areas in the preceding steps. However, in step 12, we are making a more formal statement that we have adopted a life of surrender, hope, honesty, humility, and forgiveness. Dr. Kearns ends 12 Principles book with this story. He says, there's a great story about Albert Einstein from his own graduate students in physics. Second year students were surprised to see that the questions on their final exam were the same as the questions on the first year final. When asked about it, Einstein responded that of course the questions are always the same ones. Further, what he expected was that their answers would change. So in essence, he measured their growth by their improved responses and saw that the world presented the same basic questions. So it is with the principles. Each principle inherently is about the basic life issues that we will encounter over and over again. All of us must face them, not once, but many times. The essence of these life issues can be captured in a question. Recognizing the question dramatically increases our ability to respond. Assembled together, they provide a unique roadmap for living life well. The answers reside in the principles. And like Einstein's students, each time we encounter them, they teach certain life lessons. With time and focus, the emotional topography becomes more easily recognized, allowing access to history, strategies, and personal wisdom. In short, our answers get better. However, if we fail to learn, the lessons become more difficult. Also, the lessons can get more challenging, even if we do learn them. The intent of it all is how we are refined by the struggle as individuals and perhaps as a species. So it is important to see that the 12 steps teach critical principles to these enduring questions. The notion that we graduate or finish is delusional for they will reappear again. When they do, you will know how this time the mess seems to be uniquely positioned to test you and not always in fun ways. Sometimes they are fun. Always, they seem to have personal ironies based on our past answers. To help you with this perspective, as well as create a way for you to measure your own progress, we close with a final exam. You may want to wait a while to let everything you've done in this book sink in and to see how you're able to apply the principles in your life today. If you've been using a notebook or journal to do the exercises in this book, then use it to do this exam. If not, start a journal now that you can keep around to continue this exercise over time. When you're ready, look back over your answers to the questions in this book and reflect on each principle from one through 12. Write down your thoughts on how you think your life will change or is already changing by applying these principles in your ongoing recovery. Date this entry and put your journal or notebook aside until you feel it's time to refresh your memory or renew your recovery and do the same exercise again and date that entry. That way you can measure your progress over time when circumstances prompt you to return to this book. 
Perhaps at some point you will point out to a sponsee or friend or family member that the current issue being faced is really the question, one of our 12, and perhaps they will ask you how you know. You can always respond by saying it's on the final exam. Thank you for making this journey. May you continue to practice the 12 principles in all your affairs. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.